And the lectionary is simply a way of reading through the Bible uh, once a year. And so we, there's three years in the lectionary cycle, for those of you who are really into these sort of details, years A, B, and C. But what's important about that is simply to say this, that in the one year, you hear kind of the basic story of the Bible. Year two, year three, you hear the same thing. But by the time you've gone through three years, you will have heard basically the whole Bible read aloud in church. Now, there's a reason that the English reformers did that, is that they were trying to tell people a story. Now, you say a story. That's kind of a funny word to use in church. In fact, when I was a kid, I was a troubled kid, or should I say constantly in trouble. And so when I was lying, my mother would say, oh, Todd, you're just telling a story. And I think that's often the way we think of story. Like, it's merely a story. And we've lived in a time, a time that's been going on for actually four or five hundred years, in which story in that sense is sort of minimized, and what's really highlighted and valued and appreciated and really clung to are things like facts and truth and certainty. And facts normally come to us in these things called propositions. Now, sorry for these big words at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning, but a proposition just simply means a sentence that comports with reality. So if I say this candle is lit, I've given you a proposition. No big deal, right? And that's kind of what we did with theology. We made theology all about the recitation or keeping or memorizing of these little facts and a story in which one could embody went away. So I want to say this morning as we get started that I think one of the challenges of being the church today is that we need to reclaim at least a couple of words. And one is story. Because if I just give you facts, that candle is lit, there's not much you can do with it. But what if I tell you the story of who invented that candle, and why it was invented, and its purpose, and who filled it with oil last night, and who set it up last night, and who got here early this morning to light it? Well, now you see there's something that invites your participation. Typically, not always, but typically, facts, data, certainty, propositions, they don't invite your participation the way a story does. And so these lectionary readings tell us a story that's meant to shape our imaginations. And this is the second word that I would like us to recapture. Because if I say imagination, I know that for probably more than half of you in this room, what you think of is imagination means that which is not real meaning it's merely in your imagination. It's not any kind of concrete reality. But again, I think we need to recapture that word because I think that actually we live out of our imaginations. Some of you may have heard me say this before, but that, you know, my parents, my mom somewhere has a picture of me. I'm in a diaper, one-year-old, sitting on the ground, and I have a baseball in my hand. Now, where does that come from? None of my older brothers or sisters or dads were, you know, athletes. Nobody forced baseball on me. But from the time I was a very little boy, my imagination was fueled with being a Major League Baseball player. When I got to be a teenager, somewhere about, I, had, I was driving, so I must have been about 16, I started working at Anaheim Stadium during the Angel Games. Have you seen the guys that go around with the broom and butters and keep the concourse clean? That was me at 16. By the time I was 18, I was the head of those guys. Woo-hoo, right? I was the supervisor of the porters. That's what we were called. That was a great job because picture me, 18 years old, playing baseball in high school or college, 
walking around that stadium with a walkie-talkie, sitting up in the press box, telling people, there's a beer spill down on 37C, you know, (laughs) go clean it up. That was my job. What an amazing job for somebody who wanted to be a Major League Baseball player. And I saw that they all drove Porsches and Beamers and you know, Mercedes-Benz. I saw the kind of life they lived. And my imagination was fueled with being a major league baseball player. So by the time I got to Cal Poly to play ball, here's what I did. I took all my classes early in the morning. So I was done by about 11.30 or 12. I'd go to the dorm, get some lunch, and then head out to the baseball field long before anybody else. I'd be knocking on the coach's door, getting the key to the shed, going out to the shed, getting out the jugs pitching machine, going out to the batting cage, setting it up myself, and I'd be out there practicing. Why? Was I a baseball legalist? Was I in the grip of legalism? Was I in the grip of works, you know? No. I, my imagination was fueled with the potential of living in this story. And that's what these lectionary texts are designed to do for us. So when we pick up this mor- the, 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 the reading this morning and, and we hear this sermon, and that's what it was, an ancient sermon in Deuteronomy, where the writer's saying, hey, this is what God wants to do for you. He's trying to tell a story. He's saying that, look, as you're now crossing the Jordan into the promised land, here's how you're not going to be like the generation that lived before you. Here's how you're going to be like this new generation. And he's trying to tell them a story. But as we all know, sometimes sermons and preachers don't always connect well uh, with audiences. In fact, I heard this terrible story the other day. This poor, I can't believe this happened to this guy, but it did. This guy was preaching this really sort of, you know, emotionally negative story about drinking. And about the evils of alcohol. And so he says, if I had all the beer in the world, I'd take it down and throw it in the river. And with either, even bigger emphasis, he said, if I have all the wine in the world, I'd take it down and throw it into the river. And then finally, almost like shouting, you know, because whiskey's the worst. If I had all the whiskey in the world, I'd take it down and throw it into the river. And in this profound moment, he goes and sits down in all of his profundity. And at that point, the worship leader gets up with a little smile on his face and says, shall we close this morning by singing hymn number 365? Shall we gather at the river? (laughs) So it, uh, I guess even story is not perfect, that we don't always uh, connect well. But here's the story that the sermon in Deuteronomy is trying to tell us. That when you guys cross the Jordan into the promised land, that God is going to make all the work of your hands prosperous. And then there's this horrible conditional word that, you know, all of us in the Reformed tradition would certainly like to make go away. (laughs) And, um, you know, instinctually, lots of us would like to make go away. But there's this terrible conditional word, if. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees, and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. Now, you just, I want you to just stop and think this morning. Is there two gods in the Bible? Like, is there this mean, conditional God of the Old Testament who had not yet figured out grace? Like, can you see God up in heaven in the Old Testament days thumbing through theological dictionaries that he hadn't got to the G's yet? I mean, come on, think with me for a second. This is very, very, very important, and I know it's not easy to think at 9.30 on a Sunday morning, but hang with me here. You cannot, you must not picture like this God of the Old Testament who doesn't yet get grace. 
So whatever's going on in your outline, in your scripture there, with that conditional word, if, you cannot read it, is antithetical to grace. Here's how you must read it. You must read it as an invitation to being God's cooperative friend. I'm going to bless you. So picture it this way. Here's God's blessing. Last week we talked about it, the action or the hand of God, the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God, Jesus called it. So picture that. It's happening. It's, It's going on in the earth. All that if means is that if you'll cooperate, if you'll put yourself in that, you're going to experience all these blessings. Because here's what God's not going to do. He's not going to have his thing going on, going on in earth, and then dump it on you against your will. So like, you know, if somebody's going, ooh, ick, I don't really want anything to do with God. God's not going to force it on you. So that if is not anti-grace. It's not the meanness of the Old Testament God. It's simply saying, look, if you rebel against what I'm doing like your forefathers did, and found themselves in bondage in Egypt, if you do that, well, the same sort of thing's going to happen because you're not participating in what I'm trying to do. But as you cross the Jordan now, and as you come into a new time, a new season, a new era, if you'll cooperate with me in becoming a new people, then this is all the good stuff that's going to happen for you. I love the way the message gets it. Eugene says, this commandment that I'm commanding you today, it isn't too much for you. It's not out of your reach. See, the frustration that any of these sincere Jews were feeling, any of them who actually really cared about how their forefathers acted and actually might have cared about what was going to happen on the other side of the Jordan, the frustration they were feeling was this. There's the law. We can't keep it perfectly. So we keep offering these sin offerings, and we hear that God forgives us when we burn these things but they don't set us free. We keep committing these same old sins over and over and over again. I still hate Samaritans. I still won't even go on that road. But I can go to the temple and offer a sacrifice and it cleanses me and God forgives me, whatever that might have meant to an ancient Jew. But it never set them free. It never gave them the capacity to love a Samaritan or to stop hating their neighbor, or to start doing good. And that's the frustration they're feeling, and that's why uh, Moses, or the giver of this sermon, whoever it might have been initially, says, look, you know, this is not like up on a high mountain somewhere where you've got to go get it before you can live it. This is not somewhere out in the ocean, but listen to all these words, before you can live it. You see, this is why story is so important. This sermon, this original sermon in Deuteronomy is not asking people, give mental assent to these truths. It includes mental assent, but they're being invited into a story, something they can participate in, something they can live in. That's why every time, not too high on a mountain so that somebody has to go get it so you can live it, not too deep in the ocean that somebody has to go get it so you can live it, but it's right here, right now before you, as he says, the word is right here in your mouth, near to your heart. And so, you know, Peterson, borrowing from uh, Nike, or the other way around, I'm not sure, says, just do it. This is the burden of James. When James says, don't just merely hear the word, but do it, he's not a fundamentalist. He's not like some 
raging, angry, I don't know, Baptist pastor or something beating on a pulpit. He's inviting his hearers into a story. When he says don't merely hear the word, what he means is this word that's coming to you, this story that Jesus is telling you about the gospel of the kingdom of God and the way he embodies it and announces it and demonstrates it, this isn't something for you just to hear. This is something for you to embody. And so he's, the text here says this isn't too much for you. Now, I want to put that slide back up again that we used just for a moment at the end of last week. This is the end of Matthew 11 in uh, the message, where the context is Jesus is early in his Galilean ministry. He's been out doing these amazing signs and wonders and incredible teaching. And some of the cities that he's been in are hearing him and responding to him. Others aren't. So he's been casting woes on them. And then he turns to speak to his disciples to explain to them what it would be like if they risked it all on the kingdom of God. What it would be like if they took their actual everyday life and, and embedded it into this story. And so I want you to now hear this sort of in harmony with this passage from Deuteronomy that's telling us that these words I'm giving you are not too much for you. As Jesus said to them, last paragraph, are you tired, worn out? burned out on religion, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. See, hear that again? Not you'll recover correct doctrine. I mean, life, correct doctrine is a part of life, but it can't be reduced to that. But you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. That is to say, the false rest that you've been engaging, engaging in, addictions of one kind or another, that they're not real, and you know they're not. They're not really healing you, helping you, making you feel at rest. But I'll give you a real rest. How? Through apprenticeship. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. This is maybe my favorite sentence in all the message. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. So again, when you see the action of God in the Old Testament, and him saying, if you'll come and put your life into that and start working with me in those rhythms, then you'll experience grace, you'll experience the unforced rhythms of grace. So that if, that conditional if that we've read in this horrible way is actually an invitation into this kind of life marked by grace, where he says, and this is where this fits so perfectly with the Deuteronomy passage, I'm not going to lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's the invitation of that if. That's the invitation of come be with me. And this is, of course, what the people who have come and been with Jesus have always known. This is what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, having experienced the kind of life that Jesus invites us into, and having put myself into that, and walking with him in the rhythms of grace, the psalmist says, look, Lord, teach me your ways. I love them. Show me your paths. Take a sinner like me. And instruct me. That word instruct means something like correcting the misdirected. So you picture the action of God and what God's doing on the earth and somebody else is doing something different. I can't do both those things simultaneously, but somebody else is doing something different. And the psalmist says, God, correct me, help me, put me in these rhythms of grace. And that's why he, he, he says sort of worshipfully that God guides the humble. Really, that word humble means the rejected and what is right, and teaches them his way. When we get to the reading in Colossians, it's telling us the same story. When Paul says, I'm praying for you guys. I'm asking God to fill you with his knowledge, the knowledge of his will, 
that thing that he's doing in and through people. That's why Paul says we pray this in order that. Again, look at your text in Colossians. We pray this in order that you might live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. And then it's not at all accidental that this lectionary readings are put together this way, and it's certainly not at all accidental that the next paragraph that Paul talks about, he alludes to the Exodus, where he says, look, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what Paul's picturing is that God is bringing people together in this different kind of life, that he's rescuing them from one kind of life and giving them another kind of life, which is a different kind of life in this life and also leads to a life that never ends in the life to come. That's why when this Pharisee comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't hand him a track. Jesus doesn't say this candle is lit. Now give mental assent to this and you're in. Because Jesus knows the life that God was inviting people into from Deuteronomy. He knows the life that the psalmist was worshiping God for. He knows the life that later on after Jesus that Paul was saying to people, this is the kind of life you've been asked to live. That's why Jesus tells him a story. So can you hear my mom saying to Jesus, or you're just telling a story? No, he's not just telling a story. He's issuing an invitation into a kind of life that somebody can live through the, the grace and power of God. And so, you, you know, we just read the story, so, so you, you've heard it, but let's just, um, let's just think about a couple of things here. One, Jesus asks him, what is written in the law? Well, isn't the law bad? Didn't Jesus come to deliver us from the law? But again, I, I just, you just need to know that the law, do, do not think of the law as the California motor vehicle code. That was not the law. The law was more like instructions. The law was more like teachings. It was guidance. And so that's why when Jesus asked what was in the law, how do you read it? The man tells him, I think this is the heart of the law, to love. And love means action, sort of benevolent, otherly oriented action on the behalf of others. God's done it to us. We do it to him. And then we do it to our neighbors as ourselves. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. You tick the right box on a theological quiz, you're in. Now look at your passage. What does Jesus say? Do this and you will live. Enter into these unforced rhythms of grace with me doing this and you'll recover your life. But the text says, you know, this guy wanted to justify himself, meaning he was sort of looking for a loophole. That's what justify himself here means. He's kind of looking for a loophole in the law. So he says to Jesus, well, just how would you define neighbor? And of course, Jesus answers the way he did. And the man, then Jesus says to him finally, well, which one of these three do you think was a neighbor? And the man answers, 
the one who had mercy on him. And then look again at your text. What does Jesus say? Go and do likewise. Because I'm inviting you into a cooperative friendship with me. This thing that me and God and the Holy Spirit are up to, I'm inviting you into that. And I'm going I'm to teach you. And I'm going to guide you. And, I, and Galatians 5, I'm going to give you the character. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians 4, I'm going to give you the gifts. I'm going to give you everything you need to do this. So I want to show you just one last passage here quickly from, uh, on the slide here from Romans 12. Um, again, one of my very favorite passages from the, from the message where I think here Eugene gives us a vision for how this could happen. So I, I got to remind you, though, quickly, the context of, of Romans here. I mean, remember, Romans is sort of the theological book of the New Testament, right? And so Paul's laid out all this amazing theology from Romans 1 to Romans 9, or 8. And then in 9, 10, and 11, he answers the biggest question that there had to be answered to these Jews living in Rome when he says, okay, what's happening here with God and the Gentiles and the Jews? I mean, that was the biggest question of the day. And so he's laid out this amazing theology. He's answered the biggest life question of his day in Rome. And then he says, so, here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Here's how it is that the Bible envisions we enter into this kind of life and go and do likewise. You take your everyday ordinary life. This is very important. Not a hoped-for perfect spiritual life. Not that time when the kids finally go to school and you can have a couple hours in the morning for devotions. Not when your dad who's in the nursing home finally dies and you don't have to be there every evening after the supper and you can re- after supper and you can read your Bible. Not for some sort of imagined in the negative sense kind of perfect spiritual life that will never come. But rather what the Bible envisions is that you take your actual everyday ordinary life. You're sleeping eating going to work, walking around life, and you place it before God as an offering. Here's what God's up to. Here's what's happening in your life. And you take that and you put it in harmony with what God's doing. You take your everyday ordinary life and you place it into what God's doing. Here's why. This is why that if is never, that conditional if in the Old Testament is never God's meanness. It's why it was always just another aspect of his grace. Because embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for God, and it's the best thing that can happen to you. This is what the psalmist knew. When the psalmist said, God, teach me. God, embrace me. God, what the psalmist was envisioning was something like, God, harness me together with you so that we can walk together. Because embracing what God does for us is the best thing we can do for him. So Eugene puts it, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Do you see the contrast? Here's what God's doing. Here's God's kingdom. Here's what's happening in our culture. And we sit in the middle. And the text invites us to put our life in God's life, not becoming so well-adjusted to our culture that we fit into it without even thinking. Instead, be alert to the Spirit. Fix your attention on God. And as you do this, the spiritual transformation that many of you dream for will happen as you'll be changed, he says, from the inside out. As you learn to be alert to God, as you learn to pay attention to him in your everyday ordinary life, what he says here, readily recognize what God wants from you and quickly respond to it. 
Here's why you should do it. Not because God's mean. Not because God wants you to somehow please him so that he won't judge you. But here's why, ultimately, we put ourselves into this life. Because unlike the culture all around us, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God and what he's doing brings out the best of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. So when God said to the Israelites, when James said, don't just hear the word, but do it, when Jesus said, go and do likewise, it's not mean, it's not works, it's not legalism, it's an invitation, the greatest invitation that humanity could ever hear to take their life and place it into the life of God, becoming human as God intended. That's the story this lectionary tells us. And it tells us in, in this time in the church calendar that I'm done called ordinary time. The color for ordinary time is green. Historically, it's been said that it's green because it, it um, alerts us and, and puts our mind towards health and growth. And so it's no accident that the church calendar starts with Advent and tells us what God's up to and this thing he's doing on the earth. And then we come to sort of the end of that first period of the church calendar with Pentecost because here's what God's up to and here is the power to live that life. And then we go into ordinary time. And ordinary time is all about spiritual formation. It's all about apprenticeship. It's all about, okay, here's, what, here's this story. Here's what it means to live in it. Ordinary time is really all about an invitation. Until we get to Lent. And the church says, okay, let's think about how we're doing here. And we have a season where we're able to sort of analyze how we're doing. So in this ordinary time, hear the voice of God. And hear the invitation of the Spirit into a life with God that's life that will make you the most human you could ever be. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.